Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to Parshat Pinchas, and Avi, I'm going to start off right away with really at the beginning of the parak, which is actually right before the Parsha starts, where it talks about how B'nai Yisrael were uh, having inappropriate relationships with the daughters of Moab, and in between this entire spot we seemingly switch to the people of Midian. And I was hoping that maybe you can kind of clarify to us this seemingly innocuous switch, which presumably is an entirely different group of people, which should be a meaningful thing to explore. Sure. So the people of Midian and Moab are almost always mentioned together. They were uh, neighbors in terms of where they lived, and in terms of many of the things they did together, um, and they were often engaged in similar type activities against the Jewish people. Um, And so it isn't surprising that here we see them intermingled and doing the same things. One of the most important parts is to recognize the transition that we went through from Bilam, who was an outsider trying to curse B'nai Israel, to here, the people of Moab are leading B'nai Israel astray, right? Sort of working from the inside to lead them astray. And, and they've realized if they have faith in Hashem, then they are not going to be able to impact them. But if they are able to lead them astray from following Hashem's desires, then we are, we are vulnerable. And so we talked a little bit about that last week, but I think that there is even more to it. Because if you look, it seems that Moab was responsible for bringing a lot of the um, idol worship, the uh, parties, the, the, the food, right? Um, but it was the Midianite women who got the men engaged in uh, sexual behaviors that continued to lead them astray um, and which led to this ultimate moment of Pinchas doing what he did. Um, And so I think it's not so surprising to find them commingled. And at the same time, I think that we see them sort of one-upping each other in undermining B'nai Israel.
So, Avi, the next question that kind of comes up pretty, pretty repeatedly throughout this parsha is, it, the Torah is waxing nostalgic about what just happened. Um, you know, we see that with the reminder of Korach and his family, and there's also the. Um, the recount of the Chagim, and there's yet another census, and and it's just it's a lot of recaps, and then of course we have the uh, the daughters of uh, Zelophad, who uh, you know need. It. There's all these pieces, which yes, it's important. Yes, there's value to it, and at the same time, it seems a little bit too soon to wax nostalgic. So, I think you're correct in the sense that, you know, this isn't a recap. It's not meant to be. And we shouldn't be saying, you know, like they do on the TV shows um, recently in the Torah, uh, quite yet. Um, we'll save that for, for Devar. But I think that there is a natural progression here within the Parsha if we look at it. So, it starts with, as we knew, Pinchas killing Cosby and Zimri. And that stops the plague that has been started by the idol worship and promiscuity that's been going on. And it's not unusual for Hashem to say, okay, there has been significant amounts of death due to a plague. Let's do a census. And by the way, the census isn't just going to be for who can go and fight in the army, but we're getting ready to go into Eretz Israel. We are now very close to that point. And so this is actually for the purposes of inheritance, of who's going to get land, right? And therefore, it's a little bit more in-depth, right? It doesn't just say, and in this, and in Ruvain there were 20,200, right? It doesn't just list off the numbers of each shavit like we've seen in certain other places. This is actually a genealogy of each family, starting with the patriarch, right, the son of Yaakov from each family, and then progressing all the way to where they are now. And it tells us about Nadav and Avihu and that they died. It tells us, right, who's there and who's not there. Um, and, and so here's your, here's your promise for the land. And that leads us directly to the question of Benot Slavchad, right? They're coming forward and they're saying, we understand that this is a patrilineal component, but wait a minute, what about us? Our father died here in the desert. He only had daughters. What? Can, we, can we get some? And they ask very appropriately. And they ask very nicely, right? This isn't a complaint. This is a request. And I think that's an important component in the sense that we see lots of places in the Torah where B'nai Israel complain. In this particular case, we're seeing a case where people are asking a legitimate question in a legitimate way and asking Moshe for real guidance slash direction. And so we have that piece. And we then transition into... And when you get into the land, here's what you're going to do. You're, you already have the Mishkan, but here are the holidays you're going to celebrate, right? Even, even if we 
understand that they recognized Shabbat while they were in the in the wilderness, even if we understand that they had the Chagim while they were in the wilderness, it's not the same as when you settle down and you are becoming a community. And so here are the calendar components. And they're, again, in a very specific order. It starts with Shabbat, and then it transitions to Rosh Chodesh, and then it transitions to the chronological holidays of the year. And it tells us which karbanot for the musaf, right? It starts with the tamid, the everyday um, karban that was brought. And then very methodologically, it tells us what musaf karbanot were brought, what additional karbanot were brought each and every time. And that's where it ends. It pretty much finishes, the parsha finishes right there. And so while it may seem like it's a recap, I think it's really following a natural progression of, hey, remember, these are people who are, are now coming, getting ready to come out of the desert. They aren't necessarily the ones who have gotten the direction previously. Remember, we recently got a new Kohen Gadol. And so all of these pieces are, are being reinforced and put into place as in, this is now about to really happen. Akiva, when we look at Benos Slavchad, and let's dive a little bit deeper into who they are, right? There is this group of sisters whose father has died. And they want to know what their inheritance will be. Shortly after this, Moshe is told to tell Yehoshua that he will be the next in line for leadership. Talk to us a little bit about planning. Planning for what comes in the future and Maybe talk a little bit about people's fear of engaging with death and talking about death, but why it's important. Absolutely. I think that, as we know, the Torah is many, many things. One of which certainly can be listed is it's a pragmatic guidance. It tells us what we should do, when we should do, and has really given us a rubric of this is what you're going to do next. And we know that many, many, many Rebbeim have since taken this and created more and more of fill in the blanks, fill in the details of what we're going to do. Why is that so important? And especially why is it so important when perhaps we ourselves are no longer around to have those discussions is, quite frankly, nobody else knows what that person wanted. And I think that by, by setting out this idea of inheritance, it may or may not apply in such very clear circumstances these days, but at the same time, it does definitely give us that opportunity to say, clearly this is something that is important. And why is it important? Because there are so many 
significant emotions and significant feelings and and thoughts that occur in the time of mourning and in the time of loss, the last thing you need to do is be figuring out what did this person want, how do I respect their wishes, and who gets what. That should be the last thing that anybody is worrying about. And all too often we do hear that, I don't know what they wanted. Or, you know, God forbid, even when someone is critically ill, I don't know what they would have wanted in their last moments. And such a difficult thing. And again, the Torah is very clear as much as it can be, as also it is timeless, so clearly it does not talk about specific types of life support, but at the same time we know what we can and what we can't do to a degree, what is acceptable, who to ask when we don't know, and ultimately the importance is that you have to have those conversations, you have to know what's going on because you, above all, we don't want to say, I don't know if this is what they would have wanted. I don't know if I honored what their wishes were. And that is a pain that really can't be answered. So best to avoid it. And I think that why do people fear, why do people fear death? Quite frankly, because we don't know. We don't know. Some, some believe that Allah Ba, right? We as well, it's, and, and I think everybody has their own imagery of what this might be. I always kind of think about it as one of the descriptions that I heard one time with like a football field and, you know, the more machmir you were and the, the you get to be closer to the 50-yard the line where you get to learn and, and study. And, and if you're on the outside, then... And again, that's one set of imagery. I'm not saying I still have that very clearly, but that was something that clearly it's a set of imagery that we can all picture a football field in our head. And, you know, Hashem, everybody's standing in motion studying nearby and, and when you're in the cheap seats later on. Um, but it's something that at the same time is inevitable. I'm going to shock everyone and hopefully not, but there is a 100% chance of mortality. Every single person will die. And knowing that is both terrifying because of this big unknown and at the same time in some way it's connecting so what can we do to understand this unfathomable concept we can prepare for the next generation we can say this is what I want this is how I want done this is what I have worked so hard for and we do this throughout our we do this throughout our entire life whether we realize it or not teaching your children how to treat others to value certain values ethics principles how to pass along what we do at the Seder table this is our family's minhag this is what we do never mind the material pieces but the the intangibles these are all things that we are doing throughout the earliest of their life. Planning for it formally is really just the, the small piece of it. And it's taking that last piece, which oftentimes is the most unpleasant, I would say, because the intangibles, everybody gets the intangibles. There's no, there's no limit on how much you're going to remember of this was our minhag and I don't know why we did it, but that's what we did. Or this is our minhag and then we changed it because it didn't make any sense or we love this and we look back at this and it's wonderful. right? So 
those are things that everybody gets. The things that people may or may not get, depending because there's a finite amount, are the things that need to be planned for because nobody needs to worry about that. And why is it scary? Because again, you have to have a very true conversation of, I don't know what's going to happen, but at some point I'm not here. From a very early age, we learn object permanency. Death is the antithesis of object permanency. So when we're talking about all the different korbanot, um, I have two questions that pop into my mind in, in looking this over. The first one is, we all know that on Shabbos, one is not allowed to cook. One is not allowed to create fire and then cook food and or cook anything, whether it's food or not. You can't cook. So how is it that we lead off on what you do on Shabbos with the korbanot, because pretty sure that, that involves cooking something, even even if the fire is already lit. So that's the one piece. The other piece is is I'm hoping that maybe you can shed some light on the the different numbers of mostly the changing numbers with bulls versus lambs. Uh, goats tend to seem to be pretty pretty consistent. And the rams, for the most part, are consistent. But what's, what's going on here with the different numbers? How, how does that get figured out? I can't imagine it's just based on random. So let's start with first things first. In terms of the Mishkan and then later the Beit HaMikdash, we had learned earlier and discussed earlier about how the things that we use to create the Beit HaMikdash become the rules that you cannot do on Shabbat. In other words, you would think that the building the Mishkan and building the Beit HaMikdash were so important that those would override Shabbat, and you would continue to build the Mishkan even though it was going to be Shabbat. And so the Halachot of Shabbat are put right next to the building of the Mishkan in order to teach us two things. Number one, it is not more important, meaning the building of the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash is not more important than Shabbat. It does not override Shabbat. You stop. You stop building the Mishkan. You stop building the, the Beit HaMikdash for Shabbat. The second thing it comes to teach us is that these melachot, these acts of work, are defined and created by those actions that were needed to build and run the Beit HaMikdash. So yes, we can't cook on Shabbat because we don't light fire, we don't uh, sew things together because that was what was required to, to make the, the coverings in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Mishkan, and so we don't do those things. And yet, there is always a rule that has an exception, and the exception is when you were in the Beit HaMikdash, or the Mishkan, in order to do those things, you were allowed to do things that you weren't allowed to do anywhere else on Shabbat. And I'll give some examples. So, yes, we brought karbanot, and they were brought on Shabbat. They played musical instruments, and they played them on Shabbat. Right? Normally we don't bathe, and yet the Kohen Gadol would bathe not just on Shabbat, but on Yom Kippur. And so those things that would be 
un, uh, illegal, I guess I'll, I'll use the term, right? Halachically unviable for the average person on Shabbat could be done in the Mishkan slash the Beit HaMikdash. So that's the first piece. The second piece, in terms of looking at the Chagim and all of the different karbanot that are brought, um, I will give a shout out to Art Scroll, who at the end of Parshat Pinchas gives a great little chart of the Musaf offerings. Um, and one of the things you can see there is that each Chag seems to have very specific expectations. So, Shabbat, we bring two lambs. That's it. And when we get to Rosh Chodesh, we bring two bulls and one ram and seven lambs and one chatat, which is a goat. And we can see that really they're bringing two different kinds of karbanot here. One is an ola, an elevation offering. In other words, today is a special day. We should celebrate that with something special. And so on Rosh Chodesh, they would bring these two bulls and the ram and the lambs to celebrate the day, right? And then the goat was brought as a karban chatat, a sin offering. One of the things that we know is that Hashem doesn't just give us one day a year to do tshuva, to do repentance. It's not just Yom Kippur. Every day is an opportunity to do tshuva, to, do, to repent. Every week there's a day to do tshuva, that's Shabbat. Every month there is an opportunity to do tshuva, that's Rosh Chodesh. And so this idea that there is this chatat, this sin offering to say, hey, here's a new month, clean slate, fix what's going wrong, start over, I think is an important lesson. And then when we have the chagim, we see the same kinds of things. Pesach, in addition to the karban Pesach, each day they would bring two bulls and one ram and seven lambs. And this seems to be the standard that you would bring for a holiday until we get to Sukkot. Uh, I, I, before we get to Sukkot, uh, I will say that Rosh Hashanah is a little bit different because it is a different kind of holiday. It is not one of the Shlosh Regalim. It's not one of the three regular holidays that people would come up to Jerusalem, but Rosh Hashanah was rather right the beginning of the year, and, and it is seen as Yom Trua, a day of of awe and repentance before God. Yom Kippur also is a little bit different. But you would think that Sukkot, being one of the three regalim, should have the same kind of karbanot as Pesach and Shavuot, which was the two bulls, the one ram, and the seven lambs. But instead we see that there's a lot more karbanot that are brought. On the first day of Sukkot, there are 13 bulls that are brought, and two rams, and 14 lambs. And the second day, we reduce the number of bulls by one. And the third day, we reduce again by one. And so, over the course of Sukkot, we see that there are 70, 70 karbanot that are brought. And our rabbis teach us that this is in commemoration of the 70 nations of the world. Sukkot was when people who were not Jewish could come and, and worship God at the Beit HaMikdash, right? It was the open house, 
Our sukkah is an, is, is an open space, and this was when people could come and, and connect with God through the Beit HaMikdash. And then, interestingly, we look at Shemini Yatzeret, and Shemini Yatzeret has fewer. It has one bull, one ram, and seven lambs. And the rabbis teach us that this is because while we have spent the previous seven days entertaining all of the other nations of the world, just before Hashem leaves at the end of Sukkot, Shemini Yatzeret is the one-on-one. It's when we have an opportunity to connect with God in an individual way, and therefore we're not bringing carbonot for everybody else. This is just us. This is just with God. This is a very intimate and private connection that we bring on that particular day. So we don't bring karbanot anymore, Akiva, and instead we do tefillah, and the Chazal teach us that this is avodash, I believe, this is the, the service of the heart, but can we really say that tefillah is, is like a karban? Talk to us about you know, is my time worth it? Is my effort worth it? What, how is this working? I think you hit the you hit it when you said about time. Time is something that is absolutely of the utmost value. It, that that's the one thing that doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't get more time. And I think understanding that and realizing that a is probably a really important piece, as we've discussed throughout this Parsha. Time is what it is. And I think the idea that I can't sacrifice an animal, I can't bring a korban, I can't bring a, 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 a significant fistful of flour or oil. There's nothing I can give that's material. So what do I give? I give my time. I give my time through tefillah. I give my time through learning. I give my time through uh, growing with my family, growing with my friends. It's this thing that you don't quite know what it is, but it's clearly something. And it's something that we share. And, and how do we know that it's something worth doing? Because we put our time into it. We don't rush through. When we, when we daven, and, and I don't mean you know, the, those times where we know we have to daven, but we have 17 other things to do. I mean, if, especially during the Chagim, during Shabbat, when, even during Rosh Chodesh, when Shachrit is a lot longer, right? And so you have to plan accordingly. And, and you make that effort, and you plan that time. And if it's a Chag, you take off work, you, you plan ahead, you say, oh, well, you know, this, this year... All the Chagim are on Monday and Tuesday, and so I won't be working for the entire month of Tishrei, practically. Or, uh, you know, this year, oh, oh, this year it's on Shabbos, so I only miss X number of days, so maybe I can go on a vacation. Or, right, we, we all do those calculations. And what is, what is the crooks of that? It's time. It's time, and it's time that we're saying, how am I going to spend it? I, I have this 
finite bank uh, account filled with time, what am I going to do with those numbers? What am I going to do with that? And the idea of Musaf, the idea of davening, the idea of learning and spending time is, okay, we don't have a korban anymore. It's not tangible. What can we do? And this is really something where if we think about it, if we calculate the amount of, of effort and, and for, again, there's no other word for it, right? Time, time. There's no synonym that fits. So I realize I'm saying it a lot, but that's because there isn't another word that fits for it. And if we calculate what are we spending, that's a, a cost that for many of us shows what we value. It shows what we're willing to sacrifice. And maybe it's not the same concept as we talked before about I'm sacrificing, I'm giving it away, but rather the concept of I'm sacrificing, I'm giving something that is very important to me, very valuable, and I deem this a worthy exchange. So it used to be an animal, and now it's something maybe more. If you're, if you're a family who can afford 13 bulls, then, okay, great. But everybody can afford the same amount of time as far as we know. We don't know what we have. And so I think that's where it's an opportunity to have a fair trade and let everybody see that their contribution is valuable. So this time of year is often when we begin the three weeks, and in fact, uh, as we record Motzei Shabbat, the three weeks technically began today, and tomorrow is the fast of Shiva Sabatamus. And for the next three weeks, we decrease our joy, um, commemorating tragedies that happen to the Jewish people that lead up to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And one of the things our rabbis teach us is that this is based on Sinat Chinam, the idea of needless hatred, hatred based on, on, on pettiness, based on nothing. And in some ways, I feel like we're seeing that in society today. People who are claiming to hate one another for the pettiest of reasons, without even really getting to know the other person. And so, Akiva, I'm hoping you can speak to us a little bit about how we might guard ourselves from that, how we might be able to even do some tshuva from that, and move ourselves towards havat chinam, loving every person. Absolutely. So, I just previously talked a lot about time and, and the value of it. And here we are again mentioning the three weeks, which is absolutely a measurement of time. And yeah, we commemorate all of these different things. We memorialize all of these, these atrocities that have happened. And as we kind of move along with this, I think we even 
there's more and more that gets added in. Oh, this happened uh, during the three weeks, and this happened during the nine days, and this happened on Tisha B'av, and and we add in and add in, and whether whether it happened or not in that exact time frame, in some ways is irrelevant because as you as you mentioned, the biggest thing is the the most powerful piece that we see is hatred, hatred for the sake of hatred, which is meaningless. And so I just talked about all this important piece of how we can value and, and sacrifice something that is irreplaceable for the sake of something so valuable as our relationship with Hashem, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with one another. And here we transition into the three weeks, which... I'll tell you, it reminds me of when I was in, when I was in eighth grade, we were in our uh, language arts class, and there were five minutes left, and, and everybody was goofing off, nobody was doing anything, and our teacher got very upset, she said, you guys, the class isn't over, you guys are wasting time, and I believe one or many of us said, there's only five minutes left. She made us sit in silence for that five minutes to see what it really was to throw away five minutes. It's expensive. The idea that we're wasting, we're throwing away, in this case, days, weeks of, of hatred. And the truth is, is that for many of us, it's not just days or weeks, it's years. It's an entire lifetime. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for, for, for happiness, for peace, for, for, for everybody to just love each other. And it costs so much. And it's throwing away such a precious resource. If I determine who you are before I've even spoken to you, before I've even had a conversation to get to know who you are because of the way you look, because of the clothing you wear, because of the the one belief you have and ignore all the others, then I've missed out. I think one of the things that we can do as a society is really hold on to that idea of, I don't have to agree with everything you say. That doesn't matter. There are things we can agree on. And if we look for those things, and they're not hard to find, then... We don't have to say everything is alike, right? Nobody, nobody wants that. It's, it's boring. It, it, our rebaim don't agree on everything. No one agrees. That, that's the old joke, right? You, how do you get three opinions? Ask a rabbi. Um, I don't know if that's actually the old joke, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Suffice it to say, it's okay to have differences, and I think one of the challenges, one of the problems that we've seen nowadays is if I differ from you, if we have a different thing, then that's it, we're done. I can't talk about this, I, I can't talk to you. What a loss. What a loss. I, Avi, I know that we don't agree on everything. I don't even know that we found anything that we don't agree on, but I can guarantee that we can find something that we don't agree on. And the fact remains is, I can only imagine how much we would have lost if that was what we focused on. And so I would challenge everybody, not just those who are listening, but, you know, pass it on. 
Steal my words, I don't care. I can choose to focus on what I don't agree on with someone, or I can choose to focus on how we do agree on things, and how what you say can enrich my life, and what I say can enrich yours. I don't have to agree with you for that. Not on everything. I don't have to change your mind either. We can enjoy each other for what we can enjoy and not waste time for the rest. My question for around your Shabbos table is as follows. We've talked a lot about time. We've talked a lot about getting to know people. And so perhaps you want to go around the table and ask each person, who would you like to spend more time with? Has to be somebody who's living. You might want to even limit it to somebody who's accessible. Who would you like to spend more time with? And how do you set up a time when you can spend some of that time together and do something special? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.